Well, let's go ahead and get in this word. I've been preaching. I started a sermon series last week basically about discipleship and becoming disciples of Jesus, and we've been calling it The Way. And last week, we basically opened up in saying that really Jesus didn't just come and call converts. He didn't say, hey, boys, here's the gospel. Now, I want you to repent and say this prayer after me. Invite me into your heart, and you will be saved. That was not really Jesus' message. Even though that's good, we don't downplay that. We call people to repentance. We preach the gospel that Jesus Christ has been crucified for your sins. He was raised again on the third day, and you're justified through faith in Him by grace, right? And so when you do that, we believe that coming to an altar and praying is an initiation, so to speak, that you can experience justification and salvation. But see, Jesus didn't just call you to say a prayer, be baptized, and be done with it, and say, well, thank God I'm saved. No, he called you into adopting a way of life. A new lifestyle. And so that's even why we enter into these spiritual practices together and remind people that this this thing that we're doing when we're following Jesus is much more than saying a prayer and calling yourself a Christian. It's developing a pattern of lifestyle and a set of habits and even in some regard becoming religious in what you do regularly by seeking the Lord and laying out your heart before Him. And so we're talking about that. And this, this morning, we're going to talk specifically about what it means to be with Jesus. Because last week we talked about how Jesus called disciples. In the Hebrew language, that was Talmudim. And it was a very popular way of making making disciples. And and rabbis would have followers. And when he called them, he called them for three specific purposes and goals. When he called his disciples, he called them that they might be with him one. That they're just going to spend time with him, hang out with him. And then that they would become like him. That they would notice his character, his nature, the things that he spoke, his mannerisms, how he treated people, and their goal would to be, be to become like him. And then thirdly, it would be to, be to do exactly what the rabbi or what Jesus did. So this morning we're going to start with what it means to be with Jesus because that can be a little bit confusing. Like how do, we, how do you even be with Jesus? Jesus isn't here physically. Jesus had, we say, 12, he had 12 apostles, didn't he? And then he also had numerous disciples, but he had 12 that were very close to him. But we know that Jesus had more than just 12 disciples. He had many people that were following him and spending time with him. But see, Jesus died, and he's not physically present anymore. So how do you follow a man that isn't physically present here anymore? How do you become a disciple of a man that isn't present? Well, Jesus prepared his disciples before they were leaving and what he argued about how this worked. Now, let's go to John 14 because he said, look, boys, I'm going to be taken away from you. I'm not going to be physically here with you anymore, but I need you to understand that it's actually to your advantage that I'm going away because if I go away, I'm going to send you another me, essentially. In the form of the Holy Spirit, You can continue to be my disciple, but not only will you continue to be my disciple, you will be my disciple in a new and a heightened sense. Amen. That means that actually, in all reality, you have the privilege and the opportunity to be a disciple in as great a measure or even greater measure than the disciples themselves had when they were walking with Jesus in his physical presence. And here's why. Because in John chapter, chapter 14, verse 16 through 18, Jesus is about to leave and he's preparing his disciples. And he said, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you. And notice this, he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So he says, I'm going to pray to the Father, and I'm going to ask him to send you another advocate. Now, if you look at the Greek language, this can be translated literally another one like me or literally another one of me. He's saying, I'm going to go to the Father, and I'm going to send myself back to you, but I'm going to send myself back to you in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And now he won't just be with you, but now he will be in you. He will transform you from the inside out, and you will be able to live by the impulses and the unction of the Spirit of God that now dwells within you. So it won't just be you watching me over in the distance and over in the corner. It will be me living my life now through you. So you're going to be a disciple in a heightened sense. You're not just going to watch me do stuff and try to mimic it. I'm going to be living on the inside of you, doing the stuff through you because you yield your life to me. 
And that's good news. So he says, I'm going to send another just like me, and he's going to be in you. And he says, I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. And some of us, we say, man, well, God feels so distant. I don't know how to become a disciple of Jesus. But see, these are why we begin to practice the spiritual disciplines, because in the practice of the disciplines, the Holy Spirit is able to teach us. The Bible says that he's able to guide us. He teaches us all things. He brings all things to our remembrance of what Jesus has taught us. And when we get in these sticky situations, he's the one that comes alongside us to help us regardless of what we're dealing with. But it doesn't just happen. See, it happens to those who are following Jesus and open to allowing the spirit to work in us. Now, in John 14, he goes on to say this. He says, all this I have spoken while I'm still with you. I'm still with you right now. But he says, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So according to Jesus, the way that you and I are to be disciples of Jesus, and more importantly, the way that we're to be with Jesus today is through the power of the Holy Spirit. So you say, how, how can I even be with Jesus? What does that even mean? Do I go to church? Yeah, that's part of it. Going to church is part of it. But how do I learn to be with Jesus? If I'm going to be a disciple and I'm going to be with Jesus, I've got to learn to have communion and a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And I want to make this statement. The first and primary goal of discipleship to Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit. The first and primary goal of discipleship to Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to tell you one thing about prayer and fasting that I have that I have really witnessed in my life and in my spiritual growth for, for whatever, however long I've been a Christian now. But what, I, what I've always noticed is this. I get caught up in life just like everybody else. Like, you know how it is? Like, even in our prayer lives, we got some good seasons. We got some bad seasons. Like, we start out strong, and maybe our prayer is going well, but then we go through seasons where it's almost like we forget to pick up our Bibles and read and pray, and we begin to get dry on the inside. It feels like we're not hearing from the Lord. Maybe we're distant from the Lord. When we get out in public, there's, there, there's no really, there's no impulse. There's no unction to evangelize or talk to anybody about Jesus. We don't have that sharpness to our spirituality. And I'm telling you, when we begin to pray and fast, and I've experienced this so many times, there is a, an awareness of God's presence. There's an, I'm telling you, folks, when we pray and we fast and we seek God, when you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And when we as a church, as a body of Christ, choose to pray, choose to fast in order to draw near to God, we're going to come in here sometimes, maybe on Sunday morning or maybe in your car while you're driving, maybe in your room while you're praying. But the presence of God is going to show up and overwhelm you. God is going to speak to you in a deeper way than ever before. It's not going, you're not going to live in the place where you can come in on a Sunday morning, nothing happened, you feel nothing, you experience nothing, the word be kind of dry, and then you just go home. No, you're opening your heart to say, God, we need your presence. Jesus actually said, he said, you know what? My disciples, when I leave, then they will fast. My disciples, you'll know they're my disciples in one way, because when I leave, they're going to fast. And the reason they're fasting is because my physical presence is now gone, but now they want in a deeper way my spiritual presence. I don't know about you, but when I show up here, when I wake up in the morning, when I enter into a time of prayer, I want God's presence. Do I always feel God's presence? I don't. But I pray anyway, and I seek God anyway. But I'm telling you, when you begin to really seek the Lord, there are going to be moments where you break through, and all of a sudden you begin to experience His presence in a greater way. And that's what He's saying. So He lays out, He lays out this metaphor for how we're to live in this new reality of being with Jesus and in the same context. So we were in John 14. He goes on in John 15, and he's basically laying it out even more deeply. And he says in John 15, verse 1 through 3, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word 
which I have spoken to you. So he's saying, look, Jesus is the true vine. If you read in the Old Testament, like in Isaiah, they call Israel the vine because through Israel was supposed to come the knowledge and the glory of God to be revealed to all of the world, but they failed, didn't they? Israel was not able to do it, but through Israel came Jesus Christ, who was the actual true vine, through whom all of the good fruits of God was going to be born, and all the knowledge of God was going to be revealed through the world through Jesus. So he says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. He's the dude that comes up and plucks these things and makes sure everything's clean. But then he says that we are the branches. As believers in Christ, you and I, we're all connected to Jesus. We are branches on that vine who is Christ himself. Now, the fruit grows on us. God is supposed, he has designed it so that we are the ones who bear the fruit of love, of joy, of peace, of self-control, and the world feasts on that fruit which we bear in our lives. Now, this is important to understand. Let's put an image up there. I just wanted to get an image. Somebody looked at this more and said, that's grapes. So you, you can kind of see that. Go to the next one a little bit. And what you can see is how these vines, they come up, and, 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 then, and then this is on something that is built called a trellis. And this is essential because if you go back to that original verse, right, what it says in verse 2 is it says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And you read that, and you're like, man, that's a little bit scary. Like, you telling me if I'm not bearing fruit, he's going to take away? I read some commentaries in the 1800s, which was probably, probably a, a little bit of a rough time to live because almost all the commentaries I read from the 1800s said, if you don't bear fruit, God will kill you and take you to heaven. Amen. Like, man, that, you boys preaching good. Y'all ain't bearing fruit, God will kill you. He'll take you to heaven. If you look in the Greek language, the word there is actually iro, and it, it literally means to lift up. It means to lift up. And what we know historically is that when they grew, when they had vineyards, in order to have the greatest abundance of grapes in their vineyards, they had to build trellises and lift the vine up so that the branches would have something to rest upon so that they could produce the most fruit. If the branches were laying on the ground, the fruit would get eaten, it would rot, it would die, and it would not be able to grow as lusciously because it was restricted by laying on the ground in the dirt. So they had to lift it up on a trellis. What God is saying is like, all right, here's the thing. If you are not bearing fruit as a Christian, when Jesus comes into your life, you know what he wants to do to you? He wants to lift you up. And here's the problem. Most people are not bearing fruit in their life because they are so defeated, so depressed, so discouraged, so beat down, thinking God's angry at them, thinking God's mad at them, that they're wallowing in the dirt, and that is where Satan wants to keep you. When Jesus shows up on the scene, the woman that was caught in adultery, Jesus shows up, looks her in the eye, says, Woman, where are your accusers? She says, No man, Lord. He says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And he lifts her up. The boy that was demon-possessed, he fell on the ground wallowing to and fro. When he cast the demon out, he lifted the boy up, even though he had looked as if he was a dead man. When Jesus comes into your life, I'm telling you, and this is what I experience all the time, because so many people, and even this week, I, I deal with situations sometimes where people speak on behalf of God and they spend most of their time condemning people and beating people down. There's a time for correction. There's a time for rebuke. But there, let me tell you something. When Jesus shows up in your life, no matter how broken, no matter how messed up you are, what he wants to do is come up underneath you, lift you up out of the dirt and put you on a trellis so that you can begin to bear fruit. See, Jesus didn't come to rebuke you, kick you, do all these things to you and beat you down and keep you in a place where you're depressed and dejected. He came to lift you up. Amen. Amen. So when you, and I'm telling you this, right now, I mean, I, I've been, I told Andrea I was studying for these, these, these messages. And as I'm studying, I've probably been as convicted as I've ever been convicted in my life. I'm just like, I'm like I, I, I said, Andrea, I've not been so convicted as, as since when I first got saved. Like when I first got saved, I was deeply convicted over my sin. But here, the, as I've been studying the scripture and studying what the Lord wants to do with me and with our church, it's like the Lord has just convicted me on a deeper level. But it's not, it's not about sin so much as it is, it's, it's about my lifestyle. Amen. Because he's saying, Clay, I want you and your church to bear fruit beyond what you can imagine. But I'm calling you to a lifestyle that is challenging. And in different ways, you've allowed yourself to sort of get disconnected from the vine. It's not that you're not bearing fruit. You guys are bearing fruit. Matter of fact, you know, we, we had, we had our, our, our volunteers banquet last night. And to be honest with you, last year, 
was the best year, the best spiritual fruit I've ever seen in my ministry, ever, since I've been in ministry. We saw more people saved and baptized last year, I think, than I've ever seen personally. And so God is moving. We're bearing fruit. But I'm telling you personally, individually, as a church, there is more. And he's calling us into a lifestyle. And God began to convict me over these issues. But see, when those branches will go up on that trellis, the branches will interconnect, won't they? They weave into one another so that really you can't pull another branch apart from another. And, and this is a picture of the church because you know what Satan tries to do? He tries to pull branches apart. He tries to cause division and think that this church is against that church or this church is divided or this or that. My brother over here, Scotty Jewel right here, this man pastors another church currently. You know what? We're on the same team. Amen. So, so, so we, we, we are weaved in together. Even if we meet at different places, we are weaved in together. And when you're with the body of Christ, what you need to understand that if you're going to bear fruit, the only way that you can be strong enough to hang up high is if you are interconnected with other branches. Amen. This is good this morning. And so what happens is, what happens is the church has to recognize its interdependence on one another. When you've got, when, when you're in things like small groups or you've at least got connections with people in the body of Christ where you can rely on one another and pray for one another and encourage one another, when you're interconnected, you stay lifted up. The problem is, is if you get those branches pulled apart, they actually break and they cease to produce fruit. So if you're a Christian this morning listening online and you say, well, I mean, Jesus is doing my own, our own thing and we don't really need to be connected with the body, I would lovingly say that you're wrong. We've got to be connected with the body, interconnected, lifted up, and that's the church. But see, Jesus, God doesn't break off the branch when it's not bearing fruit. He lifts it up. And I want to say this, the trellis itself, and I said this last week because we talked about bad religion and we talked about good religion. But the trellis, in one sense, that which lifts us up and holds us in a place where we can be connected to the vine and stay strong, are the practices and the disciplines of Jesus. To stay connected and lifted up, you need community. You need things like small groups. You need to meet on Sunday with the people of God. You need to go to prayer meetings on occasion or, or, or maybe every time they have one. Like, like you, need, you need your own prayer life in your, in your private time. You need to be a student of God's Word. You need to meditate on God's Word. And as you practice these things and you bring fasting into your life and you take a Sabbath and there's seasons of rest before the Lord, when you put these practices into place in your life and you're not just consumed by the world running wide open like everybody else, part of the reason we don't bear fruit is because we have no spiritual practice and we just go the same way as the rest of the world goes. Amen. So the spiritual practices are the trellis that holds us up. But let me say this other thing, is that for to produce fruit, guess what? It takes time. You can't put a microwave practice in. I, I, I know, and this is one thing that I told Andre, because sometimes you think, you think that, well, if we go on a, on a fast here for the next three weeks, we, we'll, we'll see everybody in southeastern Kentucky healed instantly. You know what I'm saying? Like we just, we want big things instantaneously. But the truth is, is that fruit, whenever somebody plants a vineyard, it takes up to three years for the first grapes to come. And these aren't even the best grapes that will come. The best grapes take time. And even fine wines that come from the grapes, what? They are aged. It takes time to produce good fruit in your life. And so we put these practices in, but it's not just for 21 days. It is for a lifetime. Amen. And so he brings us into this place, and here's what he says in John 15, and, and, and he's moving into it deeper. He says, now listen, abide in me, verse 4, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. I love that because I always used to read that and I was like, what in the world does that even mean? Without me, you can do nothing. Lord, I do all kinds of things. And even before I was saved, I did all kinds of things. What do you mean without me, you can do nothing? Without Jesus, without being connected to the vine, you can come to church, you can serve in ministries, you can do all kinds. You can even try to evangelize the lost. But if you are not connected to Jesus, it will not bear eternal fruit. It'll just be religious practice, external religious practice. We want the religious practice that connects us to Christ, 
so that his life and spirit flows through us to bring about fruit in our world. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. That's crazy to me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you desire. Through prayer and fasting, ask what God is doing. And this doesn't mean that you just get to ask for anything, but it means as you abide in him, he's shaping your will to become his will. And when you pray in alignment with what God wants, he says it's going to be done in you because you're connected to the vine. He says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. You want to be a disciple of Jesus? He says, then I want you to bear much fruit. I want your life to be transformed. I want people to see the glory of God in you, the love, the joy of peace. And he says, the way that this takes place is that the branch abides in the vine. He uses this word, abide. It can also mean remain or stay. He uses it just in John 15, 10 times. I think he's trying to make a point when you say, how important is it to abide in Christ, to be with Jesus? And a lot of times, I think even in church ministry, we often get the cart before the horse, don't we? Because we love external stuff. We love to, a lot of people, some people are doers. You know, you know like Mary and Martha, for example. Y'all know the story of Mary and Martha. Mary is at the feet of Jesus, enjoying his presence, hearing his word. Martha's over here running like a chicken with her head cut off, getting stuff done, taking care of stuff. And I get the fact that we're all wired different. Some people are prayers and some people seem to naturally be doers. Amen, right? Like if it, me, I'm just the sort of the dude that if you left me to myself, I'd just be over in a corner praying somewhere. And then you got other people who are out there getting stuff done and thank God for them. But what Jesus is saying is the stuff that you do needs to flow from a place of being with him first. Amen. Because if you just do, 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 you come into the church, you get involved in ministry. What happens to people who are not with Jesus is they burn out. Then they get aggravated at the church. They say, man, we just do stuff all the time and all this is going on. And I'm saying, you know what, we try to be very intentional about not burning people out, but the way you don't burn out is by abiding in the vine, learning the rhythms of Jesus so that you know when to rest and when to work and when to pray and when to seek and when to evangelize. There's a rhythm to this thing. There's a rhythm for growth. There's a rhythm for spiritual produce. And so he's saying we, he's driving this thing home that we need to learn to live in two places at the same time. And what I mean by that is even Jesus demonstrated this. Jesus knew that he needed to be with the Father, but that didn't mean that he started a monastery and he just hung out privately all the time. You would see Jesus draw away from moments where he would just go. And matter of fact, when he started his ministry, he spent 40 days in the wilderness praying, resisting the temptations of the devil, fasting. And then he came back into society around people entered into community with people, and was still abiding in the presence of the Father. What that means is this, that, that you can have a relationship with Jesus where you have a prayer life, where you're alone with God in seasons and in moments and in times during the day, but you don't leave the presence of God to go out in the world. You abide in the presence of God, and you take that presence with you out into the world. So he's teaching us to learn to live in two places at the same time so that we're never outside of the presence of God, but it begins with a personal prayer life. Now, Jesus called this abiding. Paul called it prayer without ceasing. There's a guy named Brother Lawrence, and he's got a free Kindle ebook on there. He's an old guy because he was born in like 1500. But he called it the practice of the presence of God or practicing the presence of God. Amen. And he wrote this book called The Practice of the Presence of God. And basically, he was a soldier that was converted to a monk, and he worked in a monastery. And his whole goal of life was to learn how to abide and practice the presence of God. And he wrote letters to people who were all around him, and they actually compiled all of these letters. And all of his letters were essentially about what it meant to practice the presence of God and to live in God's presence. And he ended up saying this. I thought it was really interesting. He said, the time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. He's like saying, when I'm at work, it ain't no different from my time of prayer. He said, and in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, because he worked in the kitchen at a monastery feeding a bunch of hangry monks, 
And he said, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees before the blessed sacrament. Now, what he's saying is this. He's saying that if we can bring the practice of the presence of God into our lives, what we're hoping through this prayer and fasting is that we take intentional moments to be alone with God, maybe for an hour a day in prayer. But what happens is, is that presence we experience when we're alone with God begins to be poured out in our workplace, in our family environment. When everybody's starved to death and going crazy and demanding things from you at your workplace, you possess God in that moment just as much as you did as if you were in the prayer closet. This is possible. This is the life that Jesus lived. He wasn't just with his father when he was in prayer alone, but he took his father with him when he exited from the place of prayer so that he carried the presence of God with him. And he said, it's just as great as if I were on my knees before the blessed sacrament. Now, he was a Catholic monk, so he would wake up every six, you know, every morning and he would come before the Lord at 6 a.m. and he would take the body and the blood of Jesus at 6 a.m. I remember, um, how many of y'all, you ever heard of the Emmaus Walk? Anybody ever heard of that? Like, it's a cool little Christian thing. If you ever get a chance, you want to go do it. They tell you not to tell any of the things, but I'm going to give a giveaway right here to part of it. Whenever, whenever I first went, I, I don't know, maybe I'd get shot for that or something. I, <laughs> probably not. They're good Christian people. Uh, but what you, what, when I first got there, I remember I went probably like 10 years ago. It was like I was in my mid-20s. I had just started pastoring, and honestly, I was overwhelmed. I was really worried about just a lot of things unnecessarily. And I, and I, mean, I was like, man, I need this. I need to get away and retreat. And, and the first night we went there, we, we, we ate. We went into this, you know, in a room, like kind of like a church, and, and they were telling us some of the things that were going on, but not all the things. And they said, here's what we're going to do. You're going to go back to your bunk tonight. But we're going to take a vow of silence, they said. Now, this may have been like 6 or 7 p.m., I don't know. So we, we, we remained silent until the next day, whenever we would w wake up that morning and sometime around 8 or after we would eat, we were allowed to talk once again. But we took a vow of silence for like 12 hours. And, man, it was just so silent. And, and I've not been around. How many of y'all you ever seen silence for 12 hours? You probably haven't. And, and, and why, so, so while I was in this silence... I, I was praying and I was just praying in my mind and thinking upon the Lord and saying, God, I need you. I need you to speak to me. And, and it was just like all of a sudden in the middle of that silence, it was like God's voice out of the midst of all the pile of stuff I had put on it just started to rise to the surface. And I remember laying in bed that night just thinking about Jesus and I started crying just thinking about him. It was like it was starting to break through all of that stuff, this constant noise and clatter that was in my life. And I remember... Waking up about 5 a.m. the next morning because now there was like an excitement to my soul about what God was going to do. I wake up at 5 a.m. the next morning and I go back into the place and it was, it was empty and they had a candle lit up front and they had a, just like a picture of Jesus, like an icon of, of, of Jesus' face, so to speak. And well, I don't have time to really discuss that, but, but they had this picture there. And, and, and I sat down and when I just look at this in this perfect silence, the love of God just began to overwhelm my soul. And I began to weep. I broke down in the presence of God. And all of a sudden, all these burdens that I had been carrying for the past several months, they just lifted. And it was like Jesus said, Son, you've been carrying so much that I never asked you to carry. This is not my yoke. This is not my burden. And you've got to give this stuff to me. And see, that's what I'm trying to bring us into and understand is that the, part of the reason our lives are crazy, we've not learned to practice the presence of God. Our hearts and our spirits are tuned to the chaos of this world and the chaos of media and the chaos of social media and our environments and our workplace. And rather than living from the presence of God, we live from the presence of the world that is in, infiltrating our hearts and our minds with all kinds of chaos. And there's a place where we can break through and let the presence of God begin to deal with our hearts. Amen. Now, I read something last week by, by Dallas Willard. I'm going to read it again just because I thought it was really good. But he said that the first and most basic thing we can and must do is keep God before our minds. See, when I practiced that silence for 12 hours, you know what was before my mind? God was. Did I get distracted and think about other things? Yes, I did. But it was an opportunity for me to bring my mind back to God. 
This is our most fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Now notice, he uses the same language. Our part in practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God, but these are habits and not the law of gravity and can be broken. Your bad habits can be broken if you really want to break them. This is going to get harder as we move through this this morning. Amen. Get ready. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward being. And so what he's saying is, look, man, and this is, this is exactly what I'm trying to say about prayer and fasting. We are hyper connected to this world. We just are. If we all looked at our phones and saw our average of screen time is high, son. And through media, we are hyper-connected to what's going on in this world, politically, socially, throughout entertainment. Everything in the world, we're hyper-connected to it. And you know, when Jesus came to his disciples, you remember I talked about that boy that was demon-possessed. You remember when Jesus comes down the mountain, that boy is demon-possessed, and the father says, hey, I asked your disciples to cast out this demon, and they couldn't do it. And Jesus said, faithless and perverse generation, what am I going to do with you? And he says faithless because they are disconnected from God. And he says perverse because they are far too connected to the world. Jesus cast the demon out of the boy. And then privately, after the disciples are embarrassed because they couldn't do what Jesus commanded them to do, they go to Jesus and they say, Lord, why couldn't we cast out this demon and help this boy? You told us we could. And he said, because of your unbelief. And then he said, how be it? This kind does not go out except but by prayer and fasting. Prayer reconnects you to God. Fasting disconnects you from the world. This is why you enter into a season where it hurts. You hate it because you are digitally addicted. You are caffeine addicted. You are sugar addicted. And it's going to make you go crazy. You're going to feel like you're coming off heroin. I get it. It ain't supposed to feel good. It's not about feeling good because we need some discomfort in our lives. There are people surrounding us in all the world that are totally uncomfortable today. They don't have good lives. They don't have all the food that you can eat. They don't have all of the sugar that you can possibly get a hold of. They don't have TVs in their house. They don't have these things in these com- But see, we maximize comfort at every stop. And in doing so, we become numb to God. And I'm not, say- I'm not saying this in order to say that... that all of us do it. I do it. I, it's, it, it. We're all in the same boat, but this is a practice where we can say no to some things in order to draw nearer to God. Here's another quote. William Paulsell says this. He says, It is unlikely that we will deepen our relationship with God in a casual or haphazard manner. I mean, that line in itself is good. He's like, how many of you all you believe you'll actually deepen your relationship with God by just saying, you know what? I think I'd like to maybe pray some. <laughs> Everybody'd like to. He said there will be need for some intentional commitment and some reorganization in our own lives. But there is nothing that will enrich our lives more than a deeper and clearer perception of God's presence in the routine of our daily living. Here's what he's saying to you. I know at the beginning of the year you're thinking, man, if I could just get some more money this year, my life will be enriched. I know y'all are thinking, if I could just get a better job this year, my life would be enriched. If my family, if I could just have this or have that, if I get a better car, my life would be enriched. He's saying, no, none of those things are really going to enrich your life like you think. What will enrich your life above and beyond anything you can imagine is a greater awareness of the presence of God in your day-to-day routine of life. Every day when you're at your workplace. And so this is why it is so essential that we understand the practices of Jesus, that we're not just believing right things about Jesus, but we're following Jesus in his spiritual disciplines and habits. So let me list, let me list a few of Jesus' spiritual disciplines and habits that are going to help us have this connection. Number one, if you look at the practices of Jesus, now these are just a few. And I, I recommended a book to somebody the other day. There's a book called The Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster has nothing to do with you actually being a disciplined person, 
what it has to do with it, he, he, he talks about 13 spiritual practices, such as prayer, fasting, meditation. And he goes through these piece by piece. And, you know, first time I read it, I was like, how am I going to put 13 practices into my life all at once? Can I tell you something? You ain't. You got Donald Sims back there. He used to say, how do you eat a whole elephant? One bite at a time, son. You know what I'm talking about? It takes time, and you got to put it into practice one step at a time. But here were some of the practices of Jesus that the Lord's really dealing with me about to get back to in a renewed way. Number one is silence and solitude. And I just shared with you that experience where I was silent before the Lord, and I was alone with the Lord. And sometimes Jesus would go away in a solitary place, oftentimes, to be alone with God, and he would be with him in silence. Number two is prayer. Jesus was such a man of prayer that when his disciples asked him about how to do something, they didn't say, hey, Lord, would you teach us to do miracles? Would you teach us to walk on water? No, they said, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? Because they knew he was a man of prayer. Thirdly, he practiced, he practiced fasting. He started his ministry with 40 days of prayer and fasting. When he was at the, at the well with the woman at the well, his disciples were going to get food. They bring Jesus lunch, and they said, Hey, Jesus, you got to eat something, man. You ain't ate nothing in days. And he said, My food is to do the will of my Father. He practiced a lifestyle of fasting. We know that he read Scripture. He studied Scripture. He had this practice in his life. And he also practiced Sabbath. Now, what is Sabbath? Sabbath is a day... Historically, it was 6 p.m. Friday to 6 p.m. Saturday. But what Jewish people would do is they would take 24 hours to rest and enjoy God and stop their working in order to just rest and be alone with God. Do you know that it's a spiritual practice to just rest and enjoy God? Amen. And sometimes we need to do that because we think in our world, man, we just need to produce more. We need to get stuff done. And then when you work five days and you get Saturday open, you're thinking, well, you know what we need to do on Saturday? It's another day we can just grip some more and get some more stuff done. Amen. And do you know that because Israel did that for 490 years, that God sent them into captivity into Babylon for that purpose? Because they refused to obey the Sabbaths they did not understand what it meant to rest the land and commune with God. And this, and I'm not, you're going to say, well, you know, Clay said, we're not under the law anymore. We don't do Sabbath. I get that. I get that. But the principle remains the same. If you don't rest, you're going to die young. You're going to get burnt out. You're not going to be connected to God. And you're not going to understand the rhythms of life. And so we have these patterns, these spiritual disciplines for becoming disciples of Jesus. And the problem is, is that really, just like I said last week, we've become such a non-religious group of people that we sort of scoff and mock about any kind of practices. Like, ah, oh, well, we don't have to be tied down to any of that stuff. We don't have to. Do, we got our own little relationship with Jesus. And what we really mean at the end of the day is we've got no template for what it means to seek the Lord. We just kind of show up at church and do our thing. And I, I'm not, again, I know this is challenging. Like last week, I'm like, man, oh, man, I, I get it. It's challenging for me. I've never been more convicted, but I'm telling you, I believe this is the pathway to true fruit, to true joy, to true abundant life. This is the way of Jesus. This is what he's calling us into. Now, understand this, too, that the practices are a means to an end. When you get up in the morning and you read Scripture, you're not reading Scripture so you can check a box and say, man, I read my Scripture. When you fast these 21 days, you're not fasting so that you can tell somebody, man, well, I fasted 21, I, like I fasted. I didn't eat nothing for a day. That's not the goal of fasting. The goal of silence and solitude is not to get up and say, you know what, I spent some time alone with God. The, the goal and the end of all of these practices are so that you can enter into a deeper walk with Jesus. He can speak to your heart. He can transform you from the inside out. All of the disciplines are not ends in themselves. The end goal is to have a deeper walk with Jesus. Amen. And so he's walking us through this. And if you look at this, Paul takes... The teaching of Jesus from John 15, and he develops it a bit. So I'm going I'm to read just another passage of Scripture here, and we're going to move through this. But Galatians 5, verse 16 through 23, he says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. Now, just out of the gate, you all understand this, don't you, right? Because this is about to happen on a level times 10 if you're entering into fasting. 
Like even right now, I feel my flesh saying, son, you can't do this to me. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about. Like if you've ever been through it, you know. Your flesh is already beginning. My, my flesh has been talking to me for two weeks just thinking about this. So you cannot, do, do not do this to me. And when I wake up tomorrow morning, my flesh is going to be screaming after coffee and food. It really is. But see, if you can deny yourself the most basic desire of, and craving of your flesh, you can begin to deny your flesh all kinds of things through the power of the Spirit. Through the power of the Spirit. So many Christians, they get saved and they continue to live a life of bondage to habits, sin patterns, because they have not crucified the flesh with its affections and its lusts. And he says, the flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. He says they're adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice, notice it's the practice, such things will not inherit the kingdom of God he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. Now, the reason I read this is this. This is probably one of the most important passages in Scripture. It's also probably one of the most misread passages in Scripture. Because what we read it as is a list of commands, don't do this and do this. In other, words, in other words, don't go out and commit sexual immorality. Don't go out and cause division and hate your brother and sister. But you go out and you be more loving. And how many of you, you know, if you try to go out and quit particular sins and try to be a more loving person, y'all ever tried that? I wake up, you know what, I think I'm going to try to be more kind today. And you give it a good effort. And you're more kind of your smile. Like, like when you come to church, you can pull it off even for like two hours. You know what I'm saying? Like you just cussed your husband out in the parking lot. And then, you, and then you walk in and you're like, hey, brother, hey, sister, how's it going? And, and you, you, you can put on kindness for about two hours. But if it's, you can act more kind, but you cannot be more kind. You can act more loving but you cannot be more loving. What is on the inside of you will ultimately come out of you when the pressure is put on your life. Who you are will be revealed when the world hits you in the face. And so what he's saying is this is not a list of commands. As a matter of fact, he gives one command in the entirety of this passage, and the command is not to be more loving or do loving acts. It's not to be more joyful. It's not for you to go out and exercise self-control. The command is to walk in the Spirit. He says if you walk in the Spirit, if you pray and come before the Lord in worship, if you seek God with your heart, if you study Scripture and allow it to get in your heart and transform you, if you exercise silence and solitude and you're alone with God, you will learn to walk in the Spirit and the Spirit will transform you from the inside out and you will begin to naturally, without effort, produce love and joy and peace and self-control. My point is this. I know we all want to be more loving people this year. We, I want to be a more joyful person this year. I will not become more joyful by trying to be more joyful. I will become more joyful by being with Jesus. He will produce it in me. Man, that is good. And this is why at the end of the day, the body of Christ, the church itself, in large measure, we exist to preach the gospel. We exist to lead people to Jesus. Absolutely. But we are to make disciples of people who understand what it means to develop a relationship with Jesus so that Jesus actually brings the transformative work in them. So if it was up to me to give you a list of commands or to teach you how to be with Jesus, I'm going to teach you how to be with Jesus every time because he will put the commands in your heart. Amen. That's good stuff right there. So if I want to experience the life of Jesus, then I must adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. You know, I play a little bit of guitar, whether you believe it or not, right? And I don't play much, but I play a little bit. And I used to like to play more than I do now. 
Now it just aggravates me because I can't really sing. And so if I try to sing, I just get frustrated. I'm like, this is stupid. I don't want to do it. But I remember wanting, I, like, how many of y'all you would love to play guitar like Steve Ray Vaughan or like John Mayer? You know what I'm saying? I'd, lo- I'd, I'd be like, I'm down for that. I'd love to be on stage just like just wait. going off on a guitar and everybody just looking at me like, yeah, yeah, he's got licks, man, hot licks. <laughs> but, <laughs> like, I, w- I would love to have that. And I, I remember actually... When I was a younger man, fantasizing about that, just thinking about, man, if I could just play guitar like that right there. But here's the thing that you don't know about Steve Ray Vaughan is the man used to listen to Jimi Hendrix and all these different people, and he would listen to them for hours. He would play guitar 12 hours a day. 12 hours a day he'd play guitar. He didn't just get there by waking up and say, you know what, I think I'll take 10 minutes to play a little bit. I'm done, I'm good. It didn't happen like that. And we think about other people. When I was also in college, I, I worked out with this, this, this guy named Justin King. Some of you know him. He, he's a funny, funny guy, but we, we used to exercise, and he, he would j- joke around. He, he'd always say, you know, you know what? They'd be like, what are you guys doing, man? We're trying to get that body, Brad, Brad Pitt Fight Club, what we trying to get. That's what he'd say. He'd say Brad Pitt Fight Club all the time. And literally, he got so obsessed with, with getting fit that he looked up the workout that Brad Pitt went through in order to get fit for the movie Fight Club. And when he read it, it was insane. It was like he ate like only chicken and broccoli for, you know, six months. He ran at 90% heart rate for 30 minutes a day, two times a day. Like he, it, it was an unreal amount of time he devoted to exercise. And when he, he wanted the body, but when he looked at the lifestyle, he said, man, I don't think I want that. The, the thing is, we want the product. We just don't want the lifestyle. We want a closer walk with Jesus. We just don't want the lifestyle. I talked to a pastor, a guy actually up in New York City. I sent him a message one time because I I listened to some things that I read some things that he wrote. He wrote that book, The Intentional Father. I sent him a message one time. I was like, buddy, when I listen to you, you're brilliant. I'm like, what's your reading habits like? Because I kind of wanted to compare myself. You know what I'm saying? And I, I said, what's your reading habits like? And he said, I read three books at a time, three hours a day, absolutely no TV. And I thought to myself, I want to be that kind of pastor, but I don't know if I want that kind of life. (laughs) Amen, right? (laughs) So you you look at these things, and here's the thing. Your life is a byproduct of your lifestyle. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is good. Your system is perfectly designed to get the results you are getting. Your system right now, the way you're living... It's perfectly designed to get the exact results you're getting. You say, well, the fruit I'm producing in my life right now, why am, I, why am I producing exactly what I'm producing? It's because you've got a system in your life going right now, and it's perfectly designed to produce exactly what you're getting. If you will tinker with your system a little bit, and that's what we all got to do at the beginning of the year. We got to tinker with our system to say Jesus is the main thing. There's more, nothing more important in our lives beginning a new year than that we learn to be with Jesus that we learn to be with Jesus. And Jesus says this. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. This is John 14, 27. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Now we live in an age of mass anxiety. Would you agree? People are more stressed, more anxious than ever before, more fearful than ever before. And we tune into media. Somebody in our prayer meeting yesterday was talking about just how since they've unplugged from, from, from media and news and politics, how much more peace has come into their soul. Somebody amen me on that. Just from unplugging from that, just for a moment. And we're dealing with this kind of life. But the thing is, I read that sometimes, and I used to have a different mindset about things. Like I just believed, and, and sometimes, I, I, like I believe in the laying on of hands, y'all. I don't know if you know this or not. Like after service, if you need prayer, that's why I ask people to come up. I believe in laying hands on people, praying for people. I believe that there can be an impartation. I believe that there can be healing. I believe that there can be deliverance. And sometimes God does things instantly. The majority of the time, he does not do things instantly, but sometimes he does. But I need you to understand this, that oftentimes peace does not come into our lives simply because we read this verse and say, Lord, give me peace. 
He's saying, my peace I leave with you, but this peace that he leaves with us is contingent upon us becoming his disciple and following his lifestyle. If we follow his pattern of life, then we are going to experience this peace that he gives. But if we say, oh, Jesus, I need peace, but I'm going to continue to live the crazy, chaotic lifestyle of the rest of the world, and we're wondering why we don't have peace. He's saying there's a lifestyle that brings about this peace that I give. And so if I look at Jesus' life, let me go through this really quick. If I look at Jesus' life on display, one, he was never in a rush. You never see this man just running wild. Boys, we, we got to get to Samaria today. You know, he was never like that. Matter of fact, after Lazarus had died, he wasn't even in a rush to get there. The man was never in a rush. He spent a lot of time in community. That means, you know, he spent time with people, but he also spent a lot of time alone. He had that balance of spending time with people, spending time alone with God in silence and solitude. He spent some time sleeping. Somebody amen me on that. Like every now and then you find Jesus in the bottom of a boat and they'd be like, he's down there asleep because he knew when to rest. He practiced Sabbath. That meant that for 24 hours every week, he unplugged. He went to the synagogue every Sabbath in order to worship. He lived simply. He wasn't going out buying stuff, trying to keep up with the latest fashionable trends and do all this stuff. He learned to live simply so that he wasn't living in a state of discontentment, always striving for more. He lived simply, just the clothes on his back. Didn't even really have a place to lay his head, he said. And he was at peace. And you're going to say, well, of course he was at peace. He was the son of God. Can I tell you something? That Jesus was perfect divinity. He was God in the flesh, but he was also perfect humanity. And Jesus had a lot harder life than you have. He had a harder life than you have. I mean, I mean y'all been threatened to be crucified. He had people out against him, religious leaders coming against him. But we look at his lifestyle and we say, okay, I don't just want to believe the right doctrine about Jesus. I want to follow Jesus in his lifestyle. And you know, for a millennia and a half, literally, if you were a Christian who got saved until the Protestant Reformation, if you got saved, they would have brought you in and they would have given you spiritual practices. They would have said, all right, buddy, we, you need to learn prayer and fasting. You need to learn how to pray and spend time with God alone. You need to learn solitude. You need to learn meditation. You need, you need to develop these habits. And then after the Protestant Reformation, we switched it. We said, ah, those aren't that important. Really, all you need is right doctrine. Right doctrine is essential. You must have it, but you cannot have it without the other. You don't just want the right belief about Jesus. You want the right practices of Jesus. And you can't have one without the other. So let me read this quote here by Dallas Willard, and I'm finishing up. Uh, you know, you say, well, how, man, you've been quoting this Dallas Willard a lot. I've been reading this book by him called The Renovation of the Heart. But here's what he says. He says, the general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. This is the feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it a reality. Man, that's good. We intend what is right. We want God to show up. If I asked everybody in this room, do you want a true, genuine revival? Do you want transformation? Do you want your family to be saved? Do you want our community to be radically transformed? Do you want to see sick people come in here and be prayed for and be healed miraculously? Do we want to see God move in such a way that people that we never dreamed would be saved would be convicted under the weight and glory of the power of the Holy Spirit when we meet together? Do we want to have meetings where we can't help but get down on our face because God shows up and we're broken before Him and we're delivered from things in our past that have been binding us up for so long? Do you want those things? You would say, absolutely, yes, we want them. But if I asked you about the lifestyle and the practices that would get us there, you'd hesitate. See, we can clap on the front end. <laughs> you clap on the front end, on the back end, it's like, ooh, that's a little bit more than I wanted. Now, here's what I will say. There's no guilt trip here because just like I said, I am in the same boat. I do not stand up here in order to say, y'all need to follow me. I have been praying, fasting, seeking the Lord. 
and I have it together. I do not. The, 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 as I'm studying this, I'm thinking, man, Lord, Lord, this is where you want us all to go. It's not, it's not easy. It's difficult. It's challenging. But this is the pathway. This is the way to fruit. And I know it can be overwhelming because even when I look at it, I'm overwhelmed. But let me give you just a couple of things and then I'm done. Short-term goals, possible long-term goals because I know they can be overwhelming. But let's just take a deep breath real quick. Ready? It's a deep breath. Man, his yoke's easy. His burden's light. So even if I select just a few of these disciplines to begin to try to implement into my life, I told one guy this morning, I said, we do 21 days of prayer and fasting. That way you got plenty of time to fail and jump back on. Amen. But long-term goals, you just want to simplify your life down to what really matters. Slowly cut out all the extra unnecessary activities and gradually add in the practices of Jesus. You slowly build this up. I'm not expecting everybody to go out today and practice all these things all at once. Me and Andre have been talking about Sabbath for a long time now, and we fail. It's like it's like it's a hard practice to literally take 24 hours. Try it one time. Take 24 hours. Have a meal at 6 p.m. with your family. Turn your phones off, and for 24 hours, leave them off. And not engage in work, but engage with God and enjoying life and set up a day where you can spend time with God and family and actually rest and be rejuvenated. This is a hard practice. But we can do it. So we want to do that. But, but possible short-term goals are this. Look at these possible short-term goals. I want you to just think about these and say, how can I implement Silence and solitude. You could do 10 minutes a day. You really could. You could take 10 minutes, go on a walk, I, that's how I prefer to do it. I like to go on a walk. I even got a creek out in my backyard. I walk up sometimes and sit on a rock out there. And, and I'm going out there. And he said, one time they asked Mother Teresa, they said, Mother Teresa, when you, when you pray to God, what do you say? And she said, well, I don't say anything. And then the, the, the guy interviewing her said, well, uh, well, then what's God say to you? And she said, well, he doesn't say anything. He listens. And she said, she didn't say anything. She listened too. And he looked at her like, what in the world are you talking about, woman? If y'all are both not saying anything and listening, then what's going on? You're setting before the stillness of God. Deep calls unto deep. Sometimes you need to come before God and not even bring your prayer list. Just be silent before the Lord. He's listening to your heart. You're listening to His heart. And you're disconnecting from the chaos of this world. Amen. Secondly, you can pray 15 minutes a day. You can bring your grocery list to God. Amen. You can go through Scripture and pray Scripture, the transformation. Say, Lord, produce in me. Let me become a loving person. You can pray these things. Fasting. Like, at a minimum, you can do, you, can, you as a person, any person here, you can fast one day a month. You could do it. You could implement that into your life. You could develop it more, but, but you could put this practice in a slow way into your life. And you can... Everybody here, you can read Scripture every day, even if it's a Bible verse. But something where you're opening the Bible, you're reading, you're getting it into your heart on a small measure, if you just take a little bit of a moment. We talked about Sabbath. And another thing that you can do, you can get in a community, you can get in a small group. It's a pretty easy, easy thing. You don't even have to come all the time. Just try to commit the best that you can in order to be connected with people. And then lastly, you can simplify. You can think about buying less, giving more, and spending less time on your phone. I read some stats about phones this week and how much time we spend on them, and I just said, I ain't even going to share that with nobody. That's just depressing. Amen. But we want to take some time to be with Jesus because he's calling us into this life, and there's a life that's waiting for us. You agree with us? You agree with me this morning? There's a life that if I can put these, this right here, I'm telling you, folks, this is where the money is. You want transformation. You want to meet with God. You want to experience God. You put these practices in your life. He will meet you. Change will come. God will move. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray this morning. Father, we just thank you, Lord, that when you call us, you don't only call us into salvation, but God, you call us into a lifestyle. But Lord, there may be people here this morning that they don't know you, that they're not saved, that they're not born again. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would begin to draw their hearts so that they could experience your salvation, your justification. And Lord, anybody that hears that call, I pray that right now they would repent. And Father, we come before you fresh. Let's each, let's each just, just pray a prayer of dedication when we come back to the Lord. Lord, we need you. As we enter into this season, there's going to be all sorts of obstacles. 
But we confess our sins afresh to you, Lord. And we ask you to forgive us of all of our sins, of all of our shortcomings. God, we don't have it figured out, but we stand by your grace and by your mercy alone. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us peace, that you would give us strength. Lord, we believe that we are saved because of our faith in your crucifixion, that you died for our sins and that you've been raised again from the dead on that third day. And we put our trust and we know that we are saved, Lord, through faith in you. And we thank you for that salvation. But God, you are bringing us into a deeper process of true discipleship that leads to transformation and much fruit. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you would bless us all as we enter into this time and into this season where we seek you like we never have before. And God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to stand to your feet. Can we just take a moment together? to respond to the Lord. I know there are people here this morning, you need prayer for different things. Some some people need prayer for, for healing in their bodies. If you want to stand in the gap for somebody this morning and come forward, we'd love to pray with you if you need prayer.